This is Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry can future-proof against social risk and lead the world into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the principal of Adamantine Energy. On today's show, I had the great pleasure of speaking with Paula Glover, who's president and CEO of the American Associations of Blacks and Energy, which is based in Washington, D.C., but I'm happy to say founded uh, where I'm located in Denver, Colorado. The association is a nonprofit professional association working to ensure African Americans and other minorities have input into energy policy, regulations, and environmental issues. As you'll um, hear, Paula has a, just a really broad range of experience, and it includes 15 years working in the industry, energy industry for both electric and natural gas distribution companies. Paula and I serve together on the National Petroleum Council, which is an advisory board uh, to the U.S. Secretary of Energy. I really love this conversation. Um, as you know, if you read both of these things are true or have listened, been listening to this podcast, I believe that the oil and gas industry has an opportunity and a responsibility to rise to this moment to address racial equity and justice. Um, this is about so much more than diversity and inclusion programs, as you'll hear today. This is about civic leadership. This is about culture change. This is ultimately about each of us growing as individuals, taking charge of our own uh, evolution so we can rise to, to the moment. So we look at what this kind of le leadership looks like in our conversation, and we get specific about what oil and gas leaders can work on today to, to lead into a shared energy future. So I hope uh, you enjoy this conversation as much uh, as I did. Enjoy the show. Um, Paula, welcome. Thank you for joining me on the Energy Thinks podcast. Thank you for having me. This is an extraordinary moment for us to talk about racial equity and justice. From your seat as the CEO of the American Association of Blacks and Energy, has your mission pivoted in any way in this moment? And, and what's on your priority list right now? Yeah, so no, our, our mission hasn't pivoted at all. In fact, I think this moment has um, been a real demonstration that our mission, as it was outlined over 40 years ago, is probably more relevant today in some way. Um, you know, if I, if I think about what has gone on in this year, kind of starting with the pandemic and then rolling through all the activities of the summer and, and all the, the various issues that we um, are dealing with as a country, the, th the thing that occurs to me is that we are, um, I think, nationally at, at what I would describe as a, a nationwide aha moment. Um, and mm -hmm. so if you think about the way that um, we, we started looking, thinking about and hearing about the disparities around healthcare and African-Americans as it related to the COVID-19 and the fact that we had, um, you know, higher rates of Black Americans who were dying from this disease because you have mm -hmm. higher rates of Black Americans who had all the other underlying conditions um, that made you far more vulnerable to the disease. Um, you also have, you know, Black um, communities who are more susceptible to, right, poor housing, less access to health care, or certainly quality health care, perhaps not access to health insurance. Um, larger percentages of the overall Black community, particularly Black women, um, who are considered essential in working in these low-wage mm -hmm. jobs, higher rates of unemployment. 
Um, and so all that stuff, right, really started to kind of bubble up to the surface in a really big way, I think, because we weren't looking at the issues were not in isolation. It was like one after the other, after the other, after the other, and you started to see the connection very clearly um, through, you know, the pandemic. And then we got to, right, um, the killing of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor mm -hmm. and Seth Rich and um, George Floyd and um, I think Michael Johnson in New Jersey and Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta, like all of that other stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think um, for me personally, no surprise that any of those things were happening. Very sad that those things happened, just devastating. But, I, you know, as a, as a Black woman, not an unfamiliar um, situation. Mm -hmm. We have seen this happen before um, and we've seen it taped and happen before. Um, if you, Eric Gardner and Walter Scott, and like you can just name all the, the African-Americans who have been killed um, by police officers for a whole multitude of reasons, um, none of which in my opinion are justifiable, but that is, you know, mm -hmm. the, that's the country we live in. Um, and I think probably what COVID did is because we've, so many of us have been sheltered in place, um, this is what we have all now been able to turn and have a laser-like focus on. Mm -hmm. And so as a nation, it's kind of like a, oh, that's what they mean, right? We're all of a sudden seeing how um, mm -hmm. we are all actually really impacted by this. And I think our, what's been interesting is our industry's response, right? And, and a recognition um, by our leaders that their employees are impacted by this. Like this mm -hmm. is not something that happened to someone else. And um, we as black employees um, are not really emotionally and physically impacted by what, what we're seeing happening in our communities um, because we are, even if we haven't felt like we could bring that and talk about that at work. Um, mm -hmm. And so this is just an interesting time, but for us as an association, these are the things that we've been talking about for 43 years. Um, mm -hmm. So there's no need to change our mission. It's really just to say, you know what, our founders got the mission right. Um, and now um, we don't need as big a megaphone to amplify what needs to happen next. Mm. And your association, because you work with energy companies and energy executives and leaders, you've put out um, pillars for this moment and how you recommend that companies engage. Will you tell us about those? Because I found them um, both engaging and enlightening to think about things through that lens. Yeah, I think, you know, what, what my, my chairwoman and I endeavor to do is as we thought about, and we're getting, you know, I was getting requests from members and others to say, hey, what is Abe's statement around, um, particularly the, the murder of George Floyd? Mm -hmm. um, I, I'll be honest, I struggled for a couple of weeks and even coming up with the right words, right? Not that I wasn't thinking or talking about it. I was thinking and talking about it all the time. I'm a mother of a, you know, I have a blended family, but I have uh, three sons, four sons, mm -hmm. um, and so, and three daughters and, and grandsons. And so mm -hmm. um, what she and I did was really take some time to think about what it is that we wanted to say. We both knew that what we wanted was to have a call to action, that we didn't just want to say how terrible the situation is because we know that, but we wanted to um, create space for there to be an opportunity for us as an industry to do more and to do better. Mm -hmm. And so our pillars are really, um, you know, our attempt and my attempt at saying, here's how I think for those companies who don't know how they can do more, do better, what can they do? Um, and because we're talking about racial um, and social racial inequities, right? So it's, it's not mm -hmm. to say that diversity and inclusion are unimportant. 
I think diversity and inclusion are incredibly important. And, and I think people who know me know that I talk about diversity and equity inclusion a lot. But I think that this moment is a little bit different than even that broad umbrella of diversity and inclusion. What mm -hmm. we are talking about um, are systems that are in place um, in all kinds of institutions in our country, in our country, even in our organizations. And we may not recognize what those systems are. Um, we may, they may not be intentionally placed or, you know, whatever the situation is, it's almost for me, a reckoning that says we are in this place today for a reason. And if we do not want to be in this place anymore, then we have to do what is necessary to get us out of it. And that means that we have to have some really directed answers. And so for us as an association, for me personally, um, I think that companies do need to be really specific um, in their action plans um, and laser focused on those plans as it relates to their black employees. Um, so that um, is everything from not just diverse hiring, but what kind of pipelines that you have in place within your organization that allows for um, promotional opportunities and just growth for your African-American employees. Um, that means that um, we have um, minority-owned, Black-owned businesses who are ready to do business with our companies today. Um, and our companies should be looking to those to, to really have a focus on like identifying who those organizations are. Um, those who stand ready, if we are doing business with them, I think our company should really assess whether or not we could be doing more business with them. Have we really um, tapped into all that they have to offer if they're currently engaging with you? Um, and then talk about and figure out how do I broaden the pool of businesses that I'm dealing with? Um, and that, that has to be a second focused effort. Um, you know, I, I believe that all our industry, our industry, I think, does tremendous work around kind of promoting STEM um, and sciences to our young people. I think they do tremendous work. I just, I believe that there's a lot more that could be done with mm -hmm. our young students. This is an industry we have um, internships or externships, we have co-op programs, um, and they are competitively based. But if we really want to um, get more students into this pipeline, then I think you make a priority to make sure that those students have um, an opportunity for those kinds of opportunities that do develop them in their career. Um, but that at the end of the day, for a lot of students of color, um, our students' ability to continue in college absolutely is about how much they have to pay for that education. Mm -hmm. And we know that um, public education, higher education, college, and I think I read this someplace, someplace is like the only industry where you have seen the increase in price is like 1400% over the last two, 20 years or something. Right. It is astronomical. Um, and so we, we have made it even more difficult for students who come from these communities to actually go to school, right? Mm -hmm. There's not the same level of grants available. Um, Pell grants are not paying the way that they used to. Um, the average price of a, of, of a think a four-year institution is in that thirty to forty thousand dollar range, mm -hmm. which is insane. We mm -hmm. have high rates of students who have invested um, in education through student loans who now can't afford mm -hmm. to pay these loans um, because the jobs are not there that would have the kind of income that would support me having a two hundred thousand dollar debt when I get out of college. And so I think our company should be providing scholarships to young people mm -hmm. so that they don't have to take that on. Um, and mm -hmm. I think it's an easy way to build a pipeline and that mm -hmm. 
um, you know, in my perspective, I, we as an association, um, all of my chapters, in addition to the national organization, offer scholarships to students, um, hundreds of students over the course of a year. And, I, and if I have the number correct, I think last year for 2019, um, between the national organization and the chapters, we gave out in excess of $250,000 in scholarships. And we rejected a lot of students. That's amazing. A lot of students who didn't get anything. Um, and so there is an opportunity for, for um, our companies to invest in those kids. And you can invest in them through aid, but there are a lot of other organizations that you can invest in. You can invest in them through the United Negro College Fund. You can invest in them through um, the Thurgood Marshall Fund. You can invest in them through NSBE um, and local activities. Um, my point is that they need to be making that kind of investment in students, right? So supporting them in their education financially, but also ensuring that those same kids um, are gonna have um, a real opportunity um, and a directed opportunity at the internships that we make available, at the co-ops that we are staying connected um, with the students throughout their educational journey. Um, and as an association, that's something that we as a, that we at, at AIDE do, but there are lots of associations that do that. Um, and so, you know, I believe that we should be doing that as well. I think that um, companies um, should be um, really thinking about how are they ensuring that they have um, African-Americans in their leadership teams, mm -hmm. um, preparing them um, for leadership in your own organization. But you know what? Listen, people do switch companies. And so part of, I think, um, where we can get hung up is that it's this expectation that someone, we, we prepare those people who are going to stay with us forever. And I think if we mm -hmm. had um, a, a way to just prepare, and if you're preparing them for your organization, that's ideal. Um, but if they go to another organization, I think that's okay. Because if other organizations are also preparing their black mm -hmm. employees, you're still right. We may be moving from company to company, but we all arguably will get the benefit of that. Um, and so how do you create pipelines to leadership and, and do some development around leadership? Again, mm -hmm. um, we as an association have a whole suite of leadership development programs that companies can tap into, but there are lots of other leadership development um, programs. So it's not necessarily about mine. It's Mm -hmm. doing something, um, but then also having that same kind of focus on who are the members of your board of directors, right? So for the association, yeah. we're focused on um, representation at every single level. Um, and that's from the board to, you know, an entry level position, whether that's a field tech, an engineer, whatever that is. Um, and then the, the last thing, although I'm saying it last because I think it is the most important thing we uh -huh. have to do before we do any of the other stuff I've just talked about, um, is that our organizations really have to, what I describe as get our houses in order. And what I mean by that is it is the time for self-reflection of what these, what these institutions really are for the people mm -hmm. who work there. Um, and that is the most difficult thing for us to do. It is the hardest piece of this work, um, in my estimation, which is really taking an honest look at what our organization's culture is. Um, how do we reflect the values um, that we have as, a, as an organization, as a workplace? And so, you know, most companies, if not all, have mission statements, they have vision statements, they have value statements. Um, and what I'm suggesting is, how do, do you know whether or not those values are translated throughout your organization? Mm -hmm. um, if, I'm, if you're the CEO, do you have, and how do you know that? 
And how do you measure that to ensure that that is consistent? And so uh, an example I would use is saying, if we say that um, customer engagement, right, and positive customer engagement um, is a core value, um, it's not as important that we say it and we have systems in place. It's more important to know that the customer who comes to you in the most dire of times. I'm the customer, if it's a utility company who has not paid my bill in six months, I am unemployed, um, I have not done any things to, to kind of keep in touch and communicate with you that I should have. So I, as a customer, that's absolutely on me and I didn't do that. But has my interaction with you as a company still been one of empathy and understanding mm -hmm. and assistance? And if that has not been the interaction, no matter what the outcome is, um, then you really have to question whether or not that value is, as you define, is something that customers see. And I would say that this work around equity and inclusion is exactly the same, that kind of focus. That, that's great. So there's one thing that really were, was woven throughout that was the importance of pipeline from the young education system through high school into college and then leadership and boards. And so the pi I think that pipeline theme is so important to overcome yeah. these systemic disparities. The yeah. other thing that you just um, started to turn to that I wanna uh, push on a little more, when, when we work with our clients, which are oil and gas industry leaders, um, culture is such a, a, an important component. And recently you were quoted in Politico talking about that when people of color are hired into organizations, the organization often expects them to assimilate into that culture rather than cultivating a culture that is truly inclusive. So uh, there's some serious work to be done here in our energy companies. And I, I, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit, you, you started on that, are we living our values? Um, what, what else is a component of the work of creating a culture that's truly inclusive? Yeah, it's, it's really, you know, there are all these kinds of terms that you'll see out in the ether about describing like strong culpa culture. So is it a culture that we might say is psychologically safe? Um, is it a culture where people can be authentic? Um, whatever that means. Can you bring your whole um, self to work? And I think we, we have the words for that. Um, and I think when I think about culture, it's like measuring that so that you know, is that really reflective? An easy example, and this isn't even a race-related example, but an example would be, I sat at, I was at a presentation once and someone asked, has anyone in this audience ever had to eat their lunch in the bathroom? And I raised my hand because I'm a mom and I can remember nursing my son. Mm -hmm. And the only place I could do that was in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And so the challenge then, right, for companies and leaders is to say is how does that translate for working moms when you say that um, I support you being a working mother, I understand that you're a working mother, I understand um, that you may have to take care of a sick child, we're sensitive to that, you should never feel like you're having a family is going to in any way hinder your progress in this organization. And yet... The first interaction that I have with your organization after I've become a new mom is that there's no place for me to nurse my baby. Mm -hmm. That sends a, a, a message that is completely 
different than what we have as an organization stated that we are. And so I think the work of culture is understanding how those dynamics intersect with one another and how does what we say as an, an organization really reflect itself through its employees. Mm -hmm. um, I think companies can get that information if they just ask. Right, you have to be in dialogue. But you have to be in dialogue and you right. have to really be ready to hear the stuff that maybe you don't want to hear. Right, right. When you have we a room of people that look the same and have the same life experience, you're not actually capable of understanding the shortcomings in your culture. So you have yeah. to go have the conversations. Absolutely. When I first started in my um, career, um, working for a utility company and, and my, one of my best friends, she and I were both in, in the association together and we were hosting an event, um, like a local, a little local event. And we were inviting colleagues that we work with um, and, and, and a couple of, you know, they, some of them were white and inviting them and like, Abe is having this thing. We really love you to come, blah, blah, blah. It's like a networking event. Nice. And one of them, and, and, and not to disparage this gentleman, because I actually think I so, so appreciate his honesty. His response was, well, I mean, it's an Abe event and I don't know that I'd be comfortable there mm. because if it's an Abe event, it must it's most likely mostly African-Americans, which was accurate, right? That is. And he mm -hmm. said, well, I don't know that I would be comfortable there. And, and our response, hers in particular was like, okay, but why then do you think I'm comfortable coming in here every day? Yes. Right. So you think that I'm comfortable coming in here every day into an, an all white environment Mm -hmm. And yet you are uncomfortable extending yourself for one hour to come mm -hmm. into an environment that's not all white. It's a right? great and for him, yeah. he was kind of mm -hmm. like, oh, I had never thought about like that. Wow, I hadn't thought about it that way. And so what we're, the whole examination around culture is really to get us to get to that kind of stuff and to recognize that it, it's there and it exists. Think about it. And, th and think about what that discomfort feels like. Um, let me ask you a, an unplanned question, which is okay. on a number of nonprofit boards that I sit on, I've ended up leading diversity and inclusivity efforts. And often um, my fellow board members will give me what I think is a fair critique, which is you're white. Shouldn't we have a person of color um, leading our diversity and inclusivity efforts? To which I think, well, we all have a responsibility to, to take this on in a leadership role. But I've never actually um, got, I, I would love your opinion about that. Is that in, in places where there is, can we have a DNI person someone who's leading these issues who isn't a person of color? And if not, how do we share the leadership burden for that? Yeah. So I actually think you can have a person who can lead DNI efforts and not be a person of color, right? I, I think that's actually um, possible. And, and so I sit on a nonprofit board that's going on this equity journey as well. Um, <clears throat> and I actually told them, because they only had two people, a very large board, only two people of color, three people of color total, two are African-American. And I said, do not ask me to lead that. Right. I said, find one of the white guys on the board and ask him to lead it, because that is a demonstration of how you're committed to it, right? That it's not me putting up a big stink and therefore you say, okay, you know, this lady keeps giving me a hard time. And so let's just do this and she can be in charge of it. I said, right. now I'll co-lead it. I said, did you find a white guy who has the same level of commitment to this that I would have and ask him to lead it? Because that then sends a message to everyone else that this is really important. Agreed. Agreed. Um, and, and I think the CEO, even if the CEO is a white man, has to get totally on board absolutely <laughs> to make that work otherwise absolutely. well it's not my job i have this other person whose role it is absolutely
I mean, that's absolutely the CEO has to be completely engaged. It has to, there have to be, um, there has to be accountability about it. Mm-hmm. Um, there has to be thoughtful conversation. Um, but I, you know, I have come kind of full circle on my thoughts about DNI because it, you know, and I'm sure you know this, right? It used to be we do diversity and inclusion because it's the right thing to do. And then we mm-hmm. kind of moved to, well, no, we need to make the business case for diversity. So let's make the business case for diversity. And we have all kinds of studies about, you know, diverse boards that make more money, diverse organizations have more innovation, innovative results, diverse, blah, 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 blah. I think all of that is true. But honestly, I actually, as I, as particularly in this moment, and the more I think about it, I think why, why is not that because it's the right thing to do, not a good enough answer, right? Like why should we have any other answer other than that's the right thing to do? Everything else that we do, that's the right thing to do. That's enough, right? You don't have to level it up with all this other reasoning. Um, and the right thing to do shouldn't be because you're going to make more money when you do it. The right thing should, to do should be that why should you want to have an organization that's not reflective of the communities that you serve and the customers that you have? That's yeah. enough. And the, no. uh, in working on my writing for this on both of these things are true. One of my colleagues, um, I, I, I was asking him how to navigate this idea for companies that aren't diverse when they say this isn't our problem, like that we don't have a diversity issue because we're not diverse. And he, he said to me, um, the whole reason we're at this systemic injustice a reckoning is because of a lack of people taking accountability and turning a blind eye. And therefore, if your company doesn't want to acknowledge that it has a diversity, inclusivity, and equity issue, it's just, it's simply perpetuating the absence of accountability. Right. Um, and I thought that was, that was a very powerful reckoning for me to think yeah. about things in that term. Yeah. I think that's, actually that's probably the best way to state it right because it's all our problem mm-hmm. i think that where we get our and, and right so when businesses say well those are social issues and they have nothing to do with me they have everything to do with you um because these are people who work for you and how is it that you expect that people are going to give you um all that they have with unrest in the streets like those two things just do not go um together um and it's you know a year or maybe over a year ago, I was speaking at an event um, in Hungary, in fact, in Budapest. And they had a speaker talking about, gentlemen talking about diversity and, and listen, in, in their perspectives around diversity, I, I actually will tell you, I was amused that they invited me to come and talk to, about diversity in Budapest. Cause you, I was like, really? Like, <laughs> I'm probably the last, you know, cause I'm not reflective of right with who, who's in Budapest whatsoever. Right. right. But they had a CEO, and I can't remember the company, so I don't want to get anyone in trouble, who kept talking about diversity as positive discrimination. Oh. Yeah. He just goes, you know, it's positive discrimination, positive discrimination, positive discrimination. And so the first thing that's interesting is that culturally, um, you know, Eastern Europeans, Hungarians are not, they don't, they're not responsive um, in that kind of setting, right? They might clap a little bit. They don't necessarily ask questions. It's very different than like an American state. Like I kept thinking, wow, because this is a women's conference. I was like, if a man stood up in a women's conference in the U.S. and kept saying about positive discrimination, there's <laughs> no way those ladies would let that guy get out the door. Right. Without 
like addressing that. Like we just would not. Marketing of some sort, yes. Right. <laughs> but this, the culturally, that's what they do. So the whole time I'm kind of sitting there like, why isn't anybody saying anything? Mm-hmm. Like this cannot possibly not be insulting. Because I was it. insulted. I yeah. actually, I spoke after him. Okay. And I said to this group, wonderful group of people, and I said, so I, I don't want to insult anybody, but I just cannot let this one go. Mm-hmm. Positive discrimination is absolutely an insult, and positive discrimination is discrimination. I was like, I don't understand right. why adding positive in some way an adjective it on should it. make you think that this is not a bad thing. Right. Um, and that essentially in my mind and in my opinion, I said, well, essentially what he's saying is that include in increasing the number of women in the workforce is discrimination against men, but it's a positive discrimination. Right. I was like, no, the opposite, the opposite right. of, of <laughs> a representative, empowered, inclusive. Workforce. Yeah. Um, and so I okay, think so we you know, know not to say that. <laughs> right. But I think to the gentleman's point, right. Is that it's all of us. If we, we all have to be engaged in this. Um, and you, you, we need allies, right? Because at the end of the day, if it's, if it's, if we're talking about increasing the percentage of women um, leaders, or uh, we're talking about increasing the number of African American leaders, if if only the women are the ones who are talking about, it, and only the African Americans are the ones who are talking about it, which, by the way, is how this started. Mm-hmm. We see how far we got. Right. We didn't get very far when we were just. It was just us. You right. needed allies and others who said, you know what. I agree and I support that and I am going to use my power and my influence to push that along. Yes, it's so important. And let let me build off of that because companies have risen to the moment in a way we've never seen before uh, across industries making really bold statements, donating huge amounts of money, in some cases making commitments. But companies we work with who are, you know, tentatively putting a toe in the water of putting out a statement, it's scary. And then in the, at this time, things have changed. There's now going to be accountability for those statements. And so there are pretty quick critiques of you put out the statement, but your board looks like this, your executive team looks like this. And so it's, I have empathy for companies that are tiptoeing into this because we're, we're saying it's time. It's like, it's time for you to get to work. And they said, okay, we're getting to work, but it's so scary because people will only critique us. I would love to hear from you. How do we say, yes, you're going to be critiqued and keep doing the work. Yeah. How do you work with your members in that way? Because I'm sure you've run into this as as well. The first time you get a critique, don't say, see, I knew it. We shouldn't, we should never have gone into this area. Yeah. You know what? So I would say, um, so what? You get critiqued as leaders all the time. Oh, good point. People (laughs) critique us all the time. I have a a colleague who actually is dealing with this. um, and And we were talking about it yesterday. And I said to him, you know, it's so easy to be, uh, to critique when you have no responsibility or accountability to those decisions. Like it's, I love critiquing people about stuff they do that actually I have no responsibility for. Um, right. Because if I had responsibility for it, I wonder, you wonder, would you be so quick mm-hmm. if, if it was you who was on the line? I don't think that that's a viable excuse not to do it. It's to say, yeah, people are going to critique you. People critique our industry about our climate response to climate change, even when we have a response to climate change. And we fight and scream and yell about all the things that we are doing to try to change that narrative. And I would say that's a far more difficult narrative to change than this narrative. And yet 
why would we be afraid to put that same level of effort mm-hmm. in, in the work that we're trying to do to be better? I think it's perfectly okay to say, we've made this statement, we have work to do, we know we have to be better, and we are working to be better. And maybe you make the commitment to follow up and let people know how you're doing that, mm-hmm. right? But if you make a statement and you have no follow-up to say, um, and this is why we struggle with our statement. I was like, I don't want to put a statement out that says I abhor racism. Of course I do. Mm-hmm. I think inequity, we need to resolve it. Of course I do. Mm-hmm. Like that's not enough. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to have something that comes behind it. So when a company says we, we abhor racism, we are shocked, dismayed, upset, you know, we understand things have to change, um, but we're not, we're too afraid to change something or we don't know what to do it does render your statement in some way a little bit empty, mm-hmm. right? Um, but if you say, and we understand that there's work we have to do within our own organization, and if somebody critiques and says, yeah, you have to do, you don't have a diverse board, then your response is, you're right. That's mm-hmm. one of the things we're going to work on. Mm-hmm. But that, That's lovely, Paula. You, you, in the same way we just talked about accountability, I think you've just really helped me have a... Um, another aha moment, a paradigm shift moment, which is uh, executives and leaders are trying to make change and getting critiqued every single day. And that, and nothing's, that doesn't stop us. We have, we have to respond to a pandemic. We have to respond to an oil price crash. We have to respond to an economic crisis and shareholder resolutions and injustice. Bring it on. Like it's on the list. Make it happen. That's great. Yeah. All right. As long as we're, you know, just marching through territory, let's keep marching. Um, So so environmental justice is an area that gets really tricky when we're talking about energy infrastructure, because there is a uh, understandable and historic critique that communities of color are disproportionately affected by energy infrastructure, by pollution. And then we have um, the flip side which is situations where communities of color can't get access to the energy infrastructure that makes for affordable, reliable um, resources. And so like, for example, in, in April and May, Jesse Jackson broke um, very visibly from progressive Democrats who wanna oppose all fossil fuel to say we have to get a natural gas pipeline to a rural area in Chicago. Uh, that community is 80% black. They don't have access to natural gas. They pay exorbitant prices. I don't want to oversimplify this conversation because I know it has a lot of variety, but I imagine you bump into this environmental justice, energy infrastructure issue all the time. How do you navigate it? How do you think about it? I, you know, I, I think about it through a lens of, I think what I would describe is economic empowerment in that, um, Absolutely, we are disproportionately impacted by these environmental issues. Our communities are. That is the truth. Um, but these issues are so nuanced and, and they are a little bit complicated. And mm-hmm. so my concern is always, uh, and this is simplistically stated, who's going to pay for it? Mm-hmm. Right? Because the truth of the matter is that sometimes the solutions that we have, not all the times, not even most times, but sometimes the environment, the solutions that we have to these environmental problems actually are going to cost the folks who you're trying to help more mm-hmm. than they're already paying. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and they don't and they can't afford what they have now mm-hmm. right and so uh when when there was an, an example view so when there was the push five seven years ago to shut down all the coal plants mm-hmm. um colleague in the environmental justice movement very very smart woman um absolutely knows what she's talking about um and so we were having this discussion about shutting down coal plants and my my argument was i think you're right that there are a lot of coal plants that need to be shut down right Mm -hmm. a they don't really have any value in the community you know the the environmental impact is just so huge um that there are alternatives for people um and so i'm with you but i said to her i said but when you shut that plant down and it's the only economic base in that community, you then create a lot of other problems. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Where's the tax base? What is the tax base that's going to, right? So people will think about it simplistically and they'll say, well, those 700 people lose their jobs, they can find other jobs. I said, let's forget about the people going to lose their jobs and 700 people losing jobs is a big deal in a small community. So yeah. that mm-hmm. not to belittle that, that's a big deal. I said, but that plant shuts down and they're no longer paying taxes to that community. Where is the money going to come from when that money disappears? And my argument was that was not, that doesn't mean you don't shut down the the plant. My argument is that you have to have a plan beyond just shutting down the plant. Mm -hmm. Like so, and so for environmentalists, it's not to say don't advocate for the things that you want. It is to say advocate and have a solution or at least some suggested solutions on the next steps if you get what you want. Mm-hmm. If, so, yeah, that's a great lens of, I love that economic empowerment because you don't just represent the oil and gas industry and fossils, you represent the full spectrum yeah. of energy. And, but this is probably true across the board because we see that communities are now opposing all kinds of energy. Yeah. So having the idea of who's going to pay for it, who will be disproportionately affected. Yeah, who's going to be affected money. and what are our solutions to deal with it? And as long as you have solutions to deal with it, I think then we're starting to come up with something that's really reasonable. The other thing around environmental justice, though, is that um, there is science around climate change, mm-hmm. right? Distinct science that tells us that climate change is real and this is what's happening. What is man-made? Um, and there's also science about, right, what is really possible around our renewable goals, mm-hmm. um, how quickly some of these things can happen, how quickly can mm-hmm. we have the level of battery storage that we need to be... Um, off, you know, have 50% of our renewables, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so we can't ignore that, right? We can't um, just create a narrative that suits us that says we want 100% renewables, we want to get rid of fossil fuels, and we'll have storage and everything is going to be great. And we're going to have that by 2030. Mm-hmm. When the reality is that the level of investment that is required to get us there by 2030 is actually not a level of investment that we as a country are prepared to make. Right. And that might disproportionately affect so different socioeconomic right. communities as well. Yeah. And so I think for us as an association, it's so important to have kind of what I would say is collaborative conversations, that everybody has to be a part of the discussion um, and that we have to get to a place where we are not just um, discounting someone else's opinion because of where they work and the business that they're in. Right. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm an environmentalist, I'm discounting the oil and gas folks because you're just fossil fuel people and you don't really care. Um, if I'm working fossil fuels, I'm discounting the environmentalists because you don't really understand my like we have to find create the space to get away from all of that. And mm-hmm. then and sit together and say, so here is a problem that we are dealing with. And yes, what we could we could deal with this collaboratively. It's kind of in my mind what we expect to see of our politicians 
even mm-hmm. though they don't really do it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you look at polling, they'll say what Americans want is they want um, de- Democrats and Republicans and independents to work together and they want bipartisan solutions. Well, I think we also, to solve some of our biggest corporate issues, we also want those kinds of solutions, right? And, and to start, you know, to end where we started. And that's why diversity is so important, right? Because when you bring together all these different people who have different perspectives, all of a sudden things that we, one may have never thought of has bubbled up to the surface. Yes. And it's like, oh, well, I didn't realize that that was also something I had to be concerned about. It's like, yeah, okay, well now let's figure out how we, right? We have a far more broader um, and honest perspective about what's really going on. And then we can get to solutions that are actually far more meaningful. That's such a great point about collaboration because a lot of energy companies have a, a, a politically conservative culture. And if the entire conversation about racial equity and justice and inclusion becomes um, tied to one kind of political agenda, then we're going to miss these nuanced conversations about mm-hmm. who bears the cost, how we actually mm-hmm. meet our climate goals. So it, so there's another reason um, you're uh, opening my eyes to of why energy leadership needs to engage and bring in diverse voices so that they're also at the table for these conversations. And this doesn't become a one-sided conversation as well, which would weaken the, the solutions that we're able to bring together. Absolutely. And then this has nothing, I mean, I think, right, we because I am politically conservative or politically liberal and progressive actually is irrelevant to what we're trying to work on. Right. Right. I don't really, whatever your politics are, it doesn't mean that you're not, you're not empathetic, right? Politics. And and I think what political persuasion is, doesn't suggest that someone doesn't care about the problem. It just means that they have a particular perspective on how they think that problem can be solved. Mm-hmm. Right. So it doesn't say if I'm politically conservative um, that I don't care about inequity, but I may have a different worldview on how we can resolve the inequity problem as opposed to somebody who might say I'm progressive, socialist, democratic, social, whatever it is. Um, and we have to, I think, walk into rooms understanding and, and really, I think, just believing um, and, and acting as such that we are all here to solve the same problem, but we may have different approaches. But what we're hoping is that when we walk out the door, we've mm-hmm. come up with a solution that honors and respects those approaches, but that we believe is going to be best to respond to the issue, whatever that issue is. Um, yeah, that's you know, great. I used to say to people, look, if we can solve the problems for the least of us, the, everybody else will be okay, mm-hmm. right? If we can tackle those things for, that are really impacting the least of us, our poorest communities, um, those who have no access, which are not necessarily just black communities, although it's a lot of black communities, but it's a lot of rural communities. There's a Mm -hmm. lot. If we could solve problems that impact those communities first, we'd all be okay. Mm -hmm. Because we're, the rest of us are already all right by comparison. Um, But we, we, we don't, I don't think we look at problems in that way. And it would be my personal desire that we, you know, kind of reversed it in that way and like like what's going on in the worst places and how do we deal with that and then work our way out that's great and there's just so many reasons that you're bringing forward today of why energy executives that maybe thought that racial and equity work was racial equity and justice work wasn't on on their list of leadership priorities there's so many reasons to create a culture 
and a company that is better positioned to lead into the energy future. Absolutely. That means you have to have those voices. You have to be fluent in these conversations. And it's interesting how much it's weaving in um, the decarbonization, pollution, all of these things that are uh, are really challenges for oil and gas executives in particular. This is actually another part of the solution, much much like bringing in millennial voices. Yes, and having a more um, inclusive discussion is going to be a better discussion than a bridge building discussion. Yeah. and well, we're all, I think, a little bit vulnerable in those discussions, right? Yeah. And so, I think for energy executives, what they have to, to what I would what I would want them to know is that they're not the only ones who are scared to have that discussion. Mm. I'm sure there are people who work for you who are also scared to have that discussion because they don't know how you're going to receive the information. Um, yes, you know, yes. Uh, and I'm and, scared to have these discussions and we just have to be scared. You just have on. to be scared. Right. You know, the, George Bush had this, and it was after uh, the killing of someone else, but this, this quote from um, President Bush, and I always laugh when I quote President Bush because I, I am not a, a Republican at all. Um, but I think that this quote is so right, spot on, and I, I hope I get it right. But he says something to the effect of, you know, we judge people by their worst examples, but want to be judged by our best intents. Mm-hmm. Right. And I was like, wow, that's it right there. If we mm-hmm. all walk in saying, I am going to, I am a reflection of the best that I have. And I believe that you are a reflection of the best that you have. Mm. And let all that other stuff that we think, believe, heard, assume go. I think then you can begin to have conversations that are really hard. Um, Because you know that we're all coming in with that same level of vulnerability and and understanding that, yeah, this is a tough discussion. But at the end of the day, I know that when I have it, something better will be on the other side of that. Um, But that it's going to, it's a little bit of progress. Well, that's such a practical suggestion for companies having these conversations, maybe for the first time, which is one, no, you're going to make missteps. You're going to say the wrong thing. Um, but, but set the shared expectation that we're going to assume the best of each other. Right. I love that. Right, that. That's really wonderful. Well, thank you, I, President Bush. Yes, thank you. <laughs> we'll find that quote. We'll link to it in our show yeah. notes. We'll also link to your um, pillars because I think that's really important. And I want to close giving you the opportunity to tell our listeners, how can they engage with your organization? How can we support you? And, how, and what resources do you have for our um, companies and their executives? Absolutely. So first, I would say invite people to, you know, obviously reach out to me directly by email, which would be pglover at abe.org. Go to our website. I'm sure there's a link and you can um, get to me that way. Um, You know, we as an association have a scholarship program. Um, I have, we have 40 chapters around the country who also have scholarship programs. They have mentorship programs. and a lot of that, they have education and outreach programs, community education programs. And so um, really want to encourage companies to um, engage with those chapters. If they, you know, want to know where one is close to you, please reach out to us. We can tell you if you want to start one because there isn't one in your area, um, please. It's not difficult to um, start a chapter and we would want to work with you on that. Um, but also um, companies that we have a program um, for uh for entrepreneurs. And we, we're looking for companies to help support our programming that would help us, right, teach and support and develop um, minority entrepreneurs, primarily African-American entrepreneurs who want to work in the energy space. And so if companies um, don't have the time or the resources or the bandwidth 
um, to make those kinds of investments, invest in us to do that work for you. The same would be around leadership development. We have a whole suite of leadership development programs. Um, we have monthly webinars that people can engage in. And then over the summer, we actually have weekly webinars that people can engage in. We have uh, policy summits. We have a national conference. We have lots of opportunities for people mm. to connect with us. The thing I want people to know more than anything else is that while um, the name of our association is the American Association of Blacks in Energy, you do not have to be black to be a member. And I have members and quite a few members who are not black. Um, and so people should not be afraid but because of the name that it's not for them. Um, mm -hmm. If you support this idea of bringing equity into our industry, having greater representation, making sure that policy gets it right for all communities, then you are absolutely the person who should be a member and engage with us. Well, I've been so impressed by your work in this conversation. I hope Thank our you. listeners will join Adamantine Energy in yes. joining your organization as members, which we'll be doing. Um, so Paula, thank you. We started thank this conversation so with your, we're having a collective aha moment. And I've got to say, yeah, you translated this into things we can do to bring a laser-like focus and commit for the long term to yeah, making yeah. these changes. So I look forward to working with you more on this and I'd love I'd love to bring you back and we can reflect in a few months on how, how we're doing. Fantastic. Kind of and I look forward to working and engaging with you. Thank you so much for the invitation. Um, and I look forward to hearing from your listeners. So please, 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 please reach out. I'm here. Perfect. Thanks, Paula. Thank you. That's our episode for today. Thanks to Paula Glover for taking the time to share her insights with us. I really loved how we began the conversation with an aha moment and how it's created a laser-like focus for company executives to think about equity, diversity, inclusivity. Um, but ultimately, this is about two things, creating uh, longevity, thinking about pipelines, thinking in terms of generations moving into the energy industry and being empowered. This is also about the personal work, the personal work required of each of us as leaders to create the conditions where we bring together the teams, the right teams to transcend conflict around racial equity and justice, to transcend political conflict, to transcend climate and environmental divides. And we can do that if we bring together the right teams and create an environment where we're having these conversations. So I loved this conversation and I hope that you did too. I wanna to know what you think about what you've heard here. So visit the podcast website at energythinks.com slash podcast and tell us. You can subscribe to Energy Thinks on iTunes and other major podcast platforms. If you like what you're hearing, please give us a rating. Thanks for listening to Energy Thinks. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness prosperity, and good health.